thank you for tuning in to this very special episode of the DOS Game Club podcast. My name is Florian and I'm going to give you a very quick introduction to this episode. Don't worry, I won't bore you for long. In August, we've been playing Quest for Glory, which is also known as Heroes Quest, the classic hybrid adventure slash RPG game released by Sierra Online in 1989. Now, scheduling a date to sit down and discuss this game with the club as we do normally has so far proven a bit difficult with the summer holidays going on and stuff like that. But in the meantime, we have something quite spectacular for you, because recently my DOS Game Club regular co-host Martin and I had the opportunity to have a Skype conversation with the creators of Quest for Glory, Laurie Ann and Cory Cole. So we touched on a lot of subjects from the early beginnings in the 1980s, how they got hired by co-founder and CEO of Sierra, Ken Williams, to what life was like making games and especially making Quest for Glory. This was especially interesting to us because DOS Game Club was created out of a hobby slash indie game development community and we really enjoy hearing about making games, especially in the old days. And we also talk a good deal about their current project, Hero U. In fact, Martin is doing most of the interview as I was mostly there as a backup and ended up not saying very much because Martin is really the better talker of us two and he handled the interview perfectly. And now, without further ado, please enjoy The Coles. The, f the first thing I think what would be interesting to talk about is, well, just how how did this all um, come about? You know, um, I read somewhere that Corey started working at Sierra in the late 80s, I think. Uh, yes, 1988. Okay. And actu actually, for us, it goes back a, a couple years before that. Oh, really? So in the um, uh, mid-80s, we were actually talking with a, uh, uh, a company that... Uh, uh, made uh, video game uh, consoles for arcades, right. and uh, and they were doing custom programming on it. And they talked about having us uh, uh, design a uh, uh, a role playing game for the uh, for these uh, consoles. Uh, and we of course had these incredibly ambitious plans for it that uh, would never have fit. <laughs> uh, uh, and eventually, that one died down. Hmm. Uh, and then uh, I had been working on uh, desktop publishing software, uh, my own, uh, for the uh, Atari ST, which is a new machine at the time. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and we were having problems where our publisher had suddenly canceled the contract for it. So I was looking uh, you know, for either a new publisher or something else to do. Right. And right about then, uh, we went to a science fiction convention. And a, uh, a friend of ours, Carly Hawksdaughter, who is a fellow uh, role-playing gamer, uh, mentioned that she was the animator for King's Quest IV huh. uh, at Sierra, and that uh, she had been called in along with everybody else in the creative staff to a uh, meeting where Ken Williams said, well, we own the adventure game market, but, you know, we used to have Automa 2, and uh, we need a new role-playing game. That's a whole market we're not, you know, we're not getting. Oh, really? Uh, yes. So, oh, so actually the idea for the role-playing adventure hybrid thing, that's... That was actually Sierra's own idea. Uh, sort of. Uh, Ken actually wanted to make a straight role-playing game, just like Ultima. Uh, ah. And uh, they had uh, they had done Ultima two before Richard Garriott uh, uh, split with Sierra and started his own company. Uh, and then uh, they had done one other third-party uh, 
uh, role-playing game that uh, apparently wasn't very good and didn't sell very well. Okay. And so they wanted to do a new role-playing game. Uh, so I called him up. Carly put me in touch with Ken. Um, and uh, I called him up. And he had said he wanted a, a professional tournament-level uh, award-winning dungeon master okay. or something like that. And we, we all laughed at that and said, there is no such thing. But I said, well, on the <laughs> other hand... I'm I'm a professional because I'm a computer programmer professional and yeah. uh I'm and I'm an award winning D and D player because I once won a tournament. <laughs> uh, and and we we had uh we had been the dungeon masters uh for a tournament game at a convention. Huh. Uh there was a, a Doctor Who convention and so we did a time travel D and D game. Uh so if you take all those adjectives one piece at a time we had them all they don't make any sense put together but one at a time we fit every single one so i said hi ken i'm your i'm your professional award-winning tournament level uh, pub- oh and i was published because i had a uh, uh, a D module called the tower of indomitable circumstance published by a group called judges guild so i was a published okay. author as yeah. well uh so super uh, qualified yep so i get on the phone call with ken and he's like Yeah, everybody here wants to uh, be our next game designer. Why should we hire you uh, from hmm. outside? It's like totally, totally cold, totally negative. And I said, wow. and I said, well, blah blah blah. And oh, by the way, I'm a, a programmer uh, uh, with uh, you know ten years of experience. So I know how to talk to the programming team and explain uh, uh, design things. And uh, my latest project uh, was a desktop publishing system in the Atari ST. And all of a sudden, the phone call changed entirely. And Really? And it turned out that, uh, yes, Ken had a contract with Atari uh, to convert all of the Sierra games to, to the Atari ST. And he had only one person in-house who knew anything at all about the Atari uh, and who was uh, their lead systems programmer who had no time for it. Ah. So, uh, he, so he didn't hire me as a game designer. He hired me as uh, the Atari ST uh, uh, programmer. Right. But you were in. And that got me in. Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, I talked to Lori and... Uh, Discovered that uh, you know said oh well about this D and D thing. Discovered Lori was you know the the real dungeon master among us, and said well we we can talk to you about that project. And like uh, three to six months later, uh, uh, Lori moved out. You know I moved out first, Stokers, and Lori came out later with uh, our new baby. Uh, so that was a, a two year old. Okay. Old. Uh, so of a challenge. Uh, and uh, then she talked to him. And they said okay, we'll make you a deal. Uh, Uh, to do this role-playing game, so that's where Laurie comes in. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm a bit. I'm trying. I'm trying to follow along. But you were already together by then. Oh yeah, we were. We had been together for at least. Hmm, let's see. It was eight years, ten years. Oh, that long. Yeah, and we had. And uh, at the point where we got uh, the contact with Sierra, uh, we had a six-month-old child at that. No, oh, six years old. Two years old at the time we moved. Yeah, that's right. Ah. Yeah. Okay. And had you been working together on on other projects as well before this? Well, Corey had we uh, was making a desktop publishing thing for the Atari ST all on our own. Right. Um, I was kind of the business manager for that. Hmm. And uh, that's a so we had been working as a team before, and of course we did a lot of. Um, Role-playing games together. Right. We did uh, co-DMing for for games 
Co, yeah, okay. Oh, you were the the dungeon master together. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and design these games together. So we had been doing games not for computers, but for real life in, yeah. interaction in that and uh, writing books a, and uh, things together. Uh, we also had the uh, newsletter. We had a thing called the Spell Book that we uh, published kind of irregularly. That was. Uh, Tied to the Mensa Fantasy Gaming uh, Special Interest Group, okay, uh, and so we did a uh, we did a irregular uh, uh, fantasy gaming newsletter. So, you know, we had some credits. Yeah, and you were also uh, used to working together on things already. So this was not um, completely a new thing. All of a sudden, that was out of the blue. Uh, because I was wondering, you know. How is it as a couple working on the same thing? Because I imagine you, during the day, you go out and you work, and then at night you come home and you, well, what what's there to talk about? Because you work together all day. So, uh, well, actually, we you know we have our division of uh, of labor here. Right. Uh, so Lori, uh, Lori and I talked over the game and what it was going to be, and. Um, you know, Lori generally uh, generates the first ideas, and then I come in and say something totally stupid just because <laughs> I'm that kind of person. Uh, and a lot of times, this something stupid gets thrown away. But sometimes, Lori says, "Well, yeah, that's kind of stupid, but what if?" Oh. And we'll we'll come up with a variation on it. And I'll say, "Oh, well, what if this?" And we work it back and forth four or five times, and uh, and the stupid idea actually turns into a clever one. Oh. Uh, so in this. In this case, uh, because I had the strong programming background and uh, uh, Lori had the writing background, uh, she actually did most of the initial design. In fact, I was off uh, doing what Sierra hired me for, which was converting King's Quest Four and Leisure Suit Larry Two, and I think Police Quest Three mm-hmm. uh, over to the Atari ST. Right. Uh, so for the first six months, Lori pretty much. Uh, you know, did stuff on her own, and I just talked about it once in a while. Right, right. Uh, and, uh, but I wasn't really happy about not being on the project that I had come for, come there for. So I had a you know argument with senior management, and I was about to quit the company. And they said, "Well, we kind of really need you here." So they said, "I'll tell you what, uh, uh, we'll make you lead programmer of this uh, new Heroes Quest project." That was the original title was Heroes Quest, mm-hmm. and so. So that was really uh, several months into the project that we started actually working together on it officially. Okay, so um, so the Hero Quest project was that started by Laurie, or did Sierra start? No, effectively, yes. I came in with a proposal. Corey had been working here for the few months and had seen how they did their games and what it uh. looked like, and we talked about it. I mean, and we knew how we played Ultima. We knew exactly what Ken was looking for, but we also looked at what their engine could do and how it was was. Uh, telling stories effectively mm-hmm. and said it would be better to use the the tools that they have to their better, you know, fuller extent. Yeah. And, and that meant really what we wanted was not just a straight Ultima style RPG, but, but an adventure uh, hybrid. Because after all, the thing we wanted to do with games, and we had been trying to get into the game market for years with all the storytelling and things, was – we wanted to tell stories. We right. wanted it to have, you know, we saw the potential for for involvement with the player 
And uh, we always felt most of the games that we had played were letdowns because there was no story. Yeah, because it's all it's all procedural. It's all, you know, just whatever happens, that's the story. And yes, and it mostly is just hit the ball, drag Fred. I mean, you just kill things from one room to another. And if you're lucky, there is some sort of story underneath that you finally, you know, finish. Hmm. Hmm. So we wanted to tell a real story, and actually we felt that, you know, Sierra had the, had, had the tools to do it. Yeah. And that's – so we came in with the thought that, yes, they want this – an RPG. Well, we can give them an adventure RPG that really uses what they, what they do best. Uh-huh. And so what, what did Ken think about this? Well, I he was very positive, actually. I came in with my, you know, uh, presentation – I actually had to do a presentation. Okay. Um, I, uh, I had done uh, sketches of what the characters would look like, what a character sheet would look like, what the story was going to be, and the idea that it would be a four-game series so that it would you know, capitalize on, on the games and keep going. And so, therefore, Ken thought it sounded like a pretty good idea, and he gave me a lead programmer who had no clue what I was trying to do. <laughs> Right, and uh, he also uh, put me in contact with uh, um, Bob Heitman, who was one of their lead uh, systems programmers, and he was he, oh, oh, Heitman Corey. So, at any rate, uh, and Heitman was was very good at telling me what could and could not go. What right. could not happen? Because I had elaborate plans. I mean, I'm an RPG player. I love the idea of having a choice of characters types to play through. Mm-hmm. So we had an elf who was an archer and a, a centaur and a, uh, a, a gnome who was a thief. So I had four different characters to be the main characters, like a typical RPG thing, and uh, was told, no, reality uh-huh. check. You can't pull that off. And later on, the, the rule in, in, in adventure games is that you have to show everything in an adventure game, and you have you don't have the money to show anything. Hmm. So, uh, okay. therefore, we had to limit our, uh, you know, how to go about it, because everything you do in animation is is costly in terms of time to create and uh, space on the computer. And at that time, space on the computer was extremely limited. Yeah. Yeah. You have to remember, at this point, very few people had hard drives. Our players were playing the games from floppies, Mm -hmm. and a typical Sierra game that uh, might come on three or four floppies, uh, you you had to constantly switch those discs out as you're playing. Uh, Well, our game came on, I believe, eight floppy disks <laughs> on the first one. Yeah. And uh, certain principal animation, like uh, the, the hero walking around and stuff like that, had to be on every single disk, because otherwise you'd be constantly swapping disks. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, so it wasn't just a, uh, you know, a money budget issue. It was a, a, a space budget. It was a, actually the more important uh, and that was also a cost of goods issue because uh, obviously if you've got a uh, you know a 360k floppy disk and you have 80k of that taken up by animation that needs to be on every disk that only leaves 280k you know for the uh, you know that part of the game right and so the more you add to the 
the generic stuff, let's say you go up to 100K, all of a sudden you're cutting 20K, not from that disc, but from every single disc. Um, and that's where you end up uh, ballooning into, uh, you know, 5, 10, 20, 100 discs and making the game completely <laughs> unplayable. Right. Uh, so this is why originally you had wanted all these various characters that you could play, but in the end, um, whether you choose the fighter or the magic user or the thief, they're all, they look the same. And, but, and this is the reason. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So we, we wanted uh, eight choices, four different races, a male or female of each race. Ah. Uh, and, uh, you know, having a woman designer obviously would have been nice to actually have the option to play a woman character. Yeah. Uh, and Sierra did, Sierra did that at the same time with King's Quest Four with Rosella as the heroine. Uh, and you could do one or one or the other, but you couldn't do both. Right. So it would have to be a, a female protagonist, and that's it. And and you didn't want to go for that. Um, I, I, the game was experimental enough as it was that uh, you know Sierra came very close to canceling it at least twice during development. Really? Uh, and we really. Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah. We actually had a meeting with Ken where he kind of shook his head and said, "I don't understand this game or what you're doing with it." Uh, and then what happened is uh, 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 two people, uh, Ken's son, Chris, who had been playtesting the game, said, Ken, I love this game. And our producer, uh, Gruka Singh Khalsa, who was Sierra's first producer, uh, who had been you know, following along on it all through the development, said, Ken, you know, this game's great. Okay. Uh, you know, adventure gamers are going to love this game. And Ken then turned around and immediately said, you know, I love this game, <laughs> even though he didn't understand it. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, but, you know, he had people that he trusted telling him that uh, there was really something special to it. Oh, uh, so uh, so you, were, you were really lucky then, in the end? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's not just luck. I mean, the game was actually very good, but it wasn't recognized by everyone. Well, the one thing we've learned about uh, uh, computer industry in general, probably all industries, and certainly the computer game industry, is it's all about luck. Hmm. Um, you know, coincidences happen. The fact that You know, the fact that we even talked to Sierra had to do with uh, someone that we knew from science fiction conventions, uh, uh, lived in Coarse Gold and had previously, before she became an artist, uh, you know, had worked for the county uh, and had been the assessor for Ken's house. And so Ken knew her as the county assessor, uh, but he desperately needed artists and when he found out she did art he said hey you want to do smart for us okay, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and then we ran into her at a party and uh, uh, she said uh, oh uh, you know Ken's looking for role playing gamers I know you guys do this uh, uh, you know fantasy gaming uh, why don't you talk to him and meanwhile the coincidence that uh, my uh, uh, desktop publishing project was faltering because the publisher was having trouble was uh, the Atari ST was not selling as many units as uh, Atari had predicted, uh, so it wasn't as big a platform as you know as expected. So all these coincidences come together to even give us the opportunity. Uh, and then that game that we had started on two years earlier had given us uh, the notes that we were able to you know talk glibly about what a uh, computer game had been. Uh, the fact that I started working in the uh, systems department of Atari, working on the interpreter. Uh, meant that I knew the uh, language inside out. I knew everything that was happening inside the game. So I knew what they could and could not do. So all these things come together. And, uh, you know, every story that we have to tell about the game industry, every story I've heard about the game industry, 
comes down to luck and coincidences. Hmm. That's interesting to me, though, because um, every time I watch some talk given by someone at GDC or something, they usually talk about determination and uh, just sticking to your plans and making it work in the end. And um, now hearing the opposite side, um, it's quite interesting to me. Yeah, that all applies, too. Let me tell you, <laughs> the re it is a very, very hard field. It is a very stressful field. You are always under a time limit. You are always dealing with people and trying to get a team together of strangers that are thrown at you with various degrees of skill, with various, uh, you know, visions of what's going on. And yet you need the synergy of the entire team to make a good project. Right. Yeah. I understand that. Um, it's just interesting that this part um, about luck is usually not the part of the story that is told, right? Well, that's part of the, you know, everybody goes, you know, everything is circumstance. It really is your life is a whole series of incidents and you have to make them meaningful. I didn't come in. I had no background in computers. I hadn't seen a computer until I met Corey. Um, I had storytelling I had a, a teacher's degree. I had animation from taking classes in, in, in college. Uh, and I, I love theater arts. These are my background to make my computer game. The, and, and it all gelled yeah. in the field. So, so that, too, is a kind of luck. Uh, luck meets determination. So what happened here is we got this opportunity. We had the phone call. And... It wasn't that big a deal to make a drive out to uh, Central California and talk to uh, uh, Ken, but uh, you know, eventually, uh, you know, things didn't go well because they didn't have a single working Atari ST in the entire uh, uh, operation there. So I had to cobble together bits and pieces of them to even give them a demo of my game. I, I should have brought my own. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but in the end, they offered me a pay that was one third less than I had been making, and it was like, do I want to take a one third pay cut? Uh, You know, and they couldn't guarantee me that the job would last more than a couple months because I would be on constant trial. And so I had to move a couple hundred miles uh, with a, a young baby uh, and, uh, uh, you know, take on a, a new job, but uh, probably not enough money to, to live on. Uh, and did I want to do all that? And I said, hell yeah, I want to make computer games. And so that's where, you know, I took the risk and it's uh, – You know, they used to be referred to as uh, jumping for the br brass ring, uh, which is an old uh, merry-go-round thing, uh, carousel thing. Uh, and uh, by the way, the uh, hit the ball drag Fred was an old golfing joke. So you're going to find for any <laughs> given individual, uh, we have uh, hundreds of jokes in uh, Quest for Glory. And probably about a third of them will go over the head of uh, uh, any given player. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the, the non-native English speakers, yeah. <laughs> of which there are a lot, I can tell you. Well, I have a few uh, uh, German jokes in there that make sense to a German and would not make sense to an American, too, because I spent a year in Germany, which is one of the reasons uh, we, we set the first game in German. Uh, I was, oh, really? Yes, I was an exchange student in high school in uh, my uh, uh, 11th grade of high school. Okay, um, that's cool. Which is second to last year in the U.S., uh, so... Uh, Yeah, a little bit of everything, but uh, yeah, uh, once we were on there, <coughs> excuse me, everybody on the team worked massive overtime. Uh, typical work week was a 50 to 60 hour week compared to the normal American 40 hour week. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you're constantly grinding. So people, a lot of people get into gaming because they love playing the games and they think it's fun. Um, and well, 
think about uh, you know a, a World of Warcraft raid group that instead of uh, playing once or twice a week in your raid group, that you're playing uh, ten hours a day, uh, five or six days a week, uh, trying to get that raid done. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's what uh, working the yes. game industry is like. <laughs> uh, yeah. Exactly. It's uh, what it's it's called crunch or something like that. It's the uh, is that isn't that the term? Yes. To like, yeah, this constant grind that you're talking about, yeah. Crunch is usually what comes the last four months when they realize just how over, uh, how much work there was to do, and your deadline is is solid, <laughs> because they always wanted to make Christmas time, and it never mattered what we did or when we started. We were always in crunch time at the end. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it maybe it's also hard to plan these things. I don't know. Is it? It is. Yeah. Nobody knows how to, how to um, really measure how fast it takes a programmer to work. I mean, there are a lot of, of uh, studies on it, but it all depends on the job. It depends on the tools. It depends on um, all sorts of factors that nobody really can just measure. Hmm. And so you make your best guess, you've, you hit that, you set that as your goal, and you try to do it. But my games were always more co complex than the average game that had been out there. They were certainly more complex. Any given scene in, say, a King's Quest had one purpose and one purpose only. Right. You found that, you did that uh, uh, objective, and then the scene was gone. But for uh, my game, I wanted every room to have multiple purposes, to have multiple things to do. So you had multiple conversations available in that, which meant that every room was three times as complex as a given, you know, typical Sierra room. Yeah. And also the, the RPG uh, gameplay on top. Yes. Which is not in any other Sierra game, I think. Yes. So, yeah. And that all needed to be play tested too, which was how a, a good RPG works, is that you, you write it down and then you test it and you test it and you test it. And that isn't the way Sierra works. Sierra, you create the whole game and then you test it for a couple of weeks and then throw it on the public. Oh. It didn't work very well with my kind of game, but that's the way they went with it. They didn't have um, iteration and things like this. Like, no, like, they didn't. Oh, okay. And an adventure game, it's hard to do iteration because you have so many things that, that have to come together. And the games really, and this is why Ken couldn't tell if the game was fun or not, because all he could see is that it looked like a half of adventure game. It, it didn't make any sense because there was no life to it until you put all the pieces together, until you put all the animate, the, the final animation in it so that it looks good and the music in it so that you have emotional appeal. The game does, just looks like you know, meaningless images on a screen. Mm. And so you can't really tell the full impact of an adventure game or our kind of game until they all, all the pieces fit in as a puzzle and it, and it comes together. Right. Yes. Uh, uh, modern role-playing games, uh, the designers uh, sit down with uh, spreadsheets and work out all the uh, – uh, rock, paper, scissors type interactions between different weapons and different monsters and, uh, you know, carefully plot out uh, what they're going to have everywhere in the game. We didn't do any of that. We pretty much 
said, okay, as the game progresses and as you get farther from town, the monsters are going to get stronger, uh, and we'll have a, a system where the player can get uh, you know more powerful abilities as they practice. It was a practice makes perfect game, mm-hmm. uh, and you know so we had these general ideas, but then we you know put all this stuff together, and there was very little testing to find out if there was any game balance or if these uh, you know for uh, giving the skills at the right pace uh, or if uh, you. You know, you actually were strong enough to fight the later monsters. Right. Uh, and so there's luck, <laughs> almost <laughs> luck coming in there uh, as to whether whether it was actually playable. Uh, Lori mentioned the music. Uh, music comes in in the last month or two of the game. Hmm. And the game really, really feels flat even to the developers uh, until the music comes in. It's so essential. Yeah. Uh, in the case of Heroes Quest that you just played, Quest for Glory 1, uh, the original Heroes Quest version, we were... Uh, one month from our shipping deadline, and they were making a go no go decision whether to uh, uh, start, uh, you know, sign off on the testing and, and start building it. When the uh, quality assurance people found a crashing bug in the Cobalt, uh, which your players may remember, yeah, uh, and the problem had to do with the Cobalt has a spell called Reflect uh, that uh, makes uh, if the player is playing a mage, uh, causes his spells to bounce back at him, uh, and just because of you know inner details of the system of uh, we had, uh, it could end up reflecting a spell uh, which might hit any object in the room. Uh, and if you did things in the right order, uh, you could actually break the game entirely because an object could have been destroyed uh, prior to being hit, and then it gets hit and the game crashes. Uh, so, uh. so I actually we actually had to make a deal where I spent two weeks completely recoding all, all the logic of that scene uh, while they went ahead and pressed all the discs except the disc that scene was on. Uh, and then oh they did like, God. then they did two days of testing in that scene to say, we hope it's okay. And uh, press the uh, made copies of the last disc and shipped it. Uh, so that was one of the scariest times we had in that game. <laughs> oh <laughs> but, my God. That's intense. Uh, wow. Uh, but it's, the amazing thing is that there weren't weren't dozens of those type of errors. Yeah, yeah, okay, I suppose. But still, this is wow. This is really crazy because you couldn't um, you couldn't uh, patch the game later. You couldn't say, "Well, just get this update and it will be all right," because there was no way to get these updates to the players. Now, at that point, uh, the ARPANET existed and. Uh uh, in a few colleges, and there were some things like CompuServe and Genie that uh, had forums so people could talk to each other. Uh, but other than that, there was no internet co- connectivity. Uh, there was really no way of getting hold of uh, uh, people after they bought the game unless they sent in the uh, uh, the registration card. Uh, so uh, when people did that, there were occasionally patches to games, but maybe only 10% or 20% of players ever got the patches. Right. So it was really essential that what was on the original discs that was solid and and even though it it was crucial that that those original discs worked really well there was hardly any testing that seems a like a dangerous combination well Laurie Laurie said two weeks I'd say there was about a month right well but still testing uh, we, we we did have one game quest for glory four went out on only two weeks testing, and it had major bugs. Hmm. Uh, that's why Quest for Glory 4 was actually released in two versions one year apart. Uh, so the first version came out, had no voice, uh, and uh, you know had all the basic game in there, but there were a lot of problems that would crash the game different places. Hmm. 
And uh, they assigned a programmer to work on that for nearly a year. Wow. Uh, and uh, while they did that, they said, well, wh- how are we going to re-release a game we just did just because it didn't work? Uh, and they said, oh, I know. Uh, everybody's, you know, we're putting voices into uh, King's Quest V. Let's, uh, let's add voices to this one. Ah. Uh, so they had us go back and do all the voice recording. And so the uh, original version of the game in the uh, purple box uh, was a non-voiced game. was all text. Uh, and the white box that they came out with a year later uh, had uh, voice acting, but also incidentally yeah. had better code. Uh, you know, about uh, fifty or more bug fixes. Yeah. Oh. Yes. But you needed the voices in order to convince people to to buy it again, because well, in order to make it in order to make it profitable for the company. Oh, right. Because you know who's gonna, who, who's going to pay another sixty dollars for a game they already own? Yeah. Uh, just in order to get a working version of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, so. Can I ask um, what what did these uh, development cycles look like? Uh, you talk about testing for two weeks or a month, but what? How long is that uh, compared to the rest of the cycle? Um, how how long did you work on these these games? Okay, so uh, pretty much the rule at Sierra was game a year, one game a year uh, when we first started there. Yeah, okay. and we had slightly less than that, so. Uh, we had started planning on Heroes Quest in uh, July or August of 1988, uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, it was formally signed an agreement in I think uh, November or December because at that point, uh, you know, they were getting out their last ser- set of games for 1988, and they were ready to start looking for 1989. And we actually uh, were assigned a team in January of '89. Okay. Uh, the game shipped. In, the game shipped in October. So. Wow. From the point where, from the point where the first team members, besides Lori, uh, were assigned, and I wasn't even on the team at that point, uh, it was nine months to shipping. Um, yeah, that's super fast. Yeah, uh, so it wasn't like design the game and then uh, uh, and then uh, start development on it. Was uh, the entire time, and this is pretty much true of all of our games, uh, that Lori was uh, uh, designing the game and writing dialogue uh, while the programmers were working on it and the artists were working on it. Uh, and when, uh, we started out with uh, 16 color EGA, and it was actually pretty quick for uh, uh, you know it take basically one week uh, for an artist or two to uh, uh, draw the background, you know, paint the background, and uh, do all the character animation that were needed for that particular scene. Uh, and we discovered when we went to the uh, uh, 256 color VGA, and they started uh, using techniques of uh, uh, real painting rather than painting on the screen and scanning them in. And modifying them, that it uh, took much, much longer. It took about a month oh. uh, to make a scene instead of one week. Wow! Uh, and so Sierra schedules and budgets had to uh, change dramatically. Yeah, it was uh, it was somewhere between one hundred fifty thousand to a two hundred fifty thousand dollar budget uh, for our first two games, uh, or for our first game, and the uh, by the third game it had ballooned up to almost half a million, and that was uh, almost entirely the art process. Yeah, because the fidelity, just the, the graphical fidelity, increased so much in in what PCs were able to display. Yes. Yeah. And, and just the techniques. And just the techniques. When you're painting on a board or canvas, uh, and then uh, using a scanner, uh, and what they actually did is they did a pencil sketch, scanned in the pencil sketch. Programmers worked with the pencil sketch. Then they 
did the painting, and you know, an artist cannot, you know, does not paint by numbers. <laughs> they don't just fill in areas. No, uh, you know, they change they change the design as they're painting it. Yeah, and so when the final painting was scanned in, usually the programming did not work and had to be changed. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. Um, can I ask a question? Uh, you mentioned um, there was an EGA version first, and then there was a, a VGA version later. Yes, but I, I read somewhere that um that originally the game was envisioned to be uh quite a serious game with a quite a serious tone but then uh, when you saw the first 16 color graphics of of the Spielberg uh town then this made you reconsider that maybe it needed some humor to yeah to work because- there were two factors that did that okay one was we were given a junior level artist And his art style was was cartoony. Right. So it's hard to pull off a serious game when you've got a very silly looking character out there. Yeah. Um, so that started to to edge the the, the script. Um, plus, we had a, a a very very funny programmer that became my first lead programmer before Corey came on and uh what he would do is i would write the scripts for dialogues and things and the programmers were putting in the interactions for what does a tree look like if you clicked on the tree ah and he used he he was making jokes in it <laughs> and you know as i said before it's Really, a game is synergy between all the people that work for it. Hmm. And as we had a, a more cartoony style and we, he was bringing humor, that meant that the whole game really had to integrate better. And so, therefore, it, humor became a crucial to the game after a while. But the story is still serious. And there's still, you know, uh, it's still a heroic tale, but that doesn't mean you can't have fun with it. And it really was because of all the people that worked on it. Right. And, uh, what, yeah, when I came in on the team, I've always had a reputation as being a joker at work. I've always, uh, you know, loved to make puns and jokes. Uh, and so when uh, Bob Fishbach, uh, you know, uh, prototyped the first scene for us and showed, you know, showed me how to make a scene because I'd never actually made a game with uh, the SCI system. Uh, uh, I said, you mean we could do that? And so I started writing puns everywhere. Uh, and then, then we got into the uh, Erasmus and Fenris characters. Those actually came from a cartoon script that uh, Laurie had done for our uh, role-playing gaming uh, magazine, uh, the Spellbook. And uh, uh, they'd already, you know, we'd already been using puns in that. So it was natural to continue that, uh, you know, that jokiness all through the game. But, you know, at the same time, you still have a serious storyline as, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the... Uh, uh, the Baron, you know, this this uh, valley has all kinds of problems. The uh, the Baron uh, is hiding out in his castle and not dealing with them, and that's because both of his son and his uh, daughter have disappeared. The town's under a curse, uh, and you know, you're the outside hero coming in as the the troubleshooter to fix all these problems. Uh, and you know, that's a pretty serious storyline. But we can, yeah. But you need that that leavening, that lightening uh, of the game by uh, with the humor. Uh, so that players don't get so stressed out that uh, the game isn't fun anymore. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, and I, I think that, that the humor is it's one of the, the, the strong points of the game, maybe. It's like, yeah, it's what brings a lot of joy while playing it. And, 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 and exactly what you say, that it might become um, frustrating from time to time, but then when you die, 
you read something really funny and then then it's all right again then it's, <laughs> then you can yeah then you can move on so um were you happy with this change because it's different from how you envisioned it originally oh yeah we were very happy i mean it was different I mean, but all along, it was about adapting to the situation. We couldn't have multiple characters. We had to have just one character. We had to, I mean, but it makes you focus on the things that are, that, that are working. Right. And, 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 and then building on those strengths. And so that's how it comes together. Exactly. After that, it, it said how we could make games, that we would use these same things in, in our games, because those become our strengths. Yeah, that's that's great. So it's, yeah, it's it, it's it's not just this, uh, this one thing that got changed. It's really adapting all the time to, yeah, whatever was possible and whatever, yeah, appeared on your path. And that is why game design is very difficult. That is why this industry has people uh, that cannot stay in the industry very long because <laughs> it is very stressful. It requires, uh, even though you have to have a strong opinion, you have to be willing to take the opinions of everybody and make them work together. Mm. And, uh, you know, it is a very difficult job which requires a whole lot of weird skills that most people don't really even think about. Yeah. But then again, you, you mentioned earlier that you have a very rich background with lots of different influence. So maybe this helps you a bit to cope with all these different aspects. It does. Yeah. It certainly did. And it takes the stick to itness, the one who, the, you know, the, the willingness to put up with uh, with a terror with a lot of stress a lot of pressure uh you know i i would never really had to deal with people in a team situation before i went to sierra ah. and uh, so therefore you really have to learn as you go along and work with what you have yeah that's great um Let's see. Now uh, we we talked a little bit about uh, the original version and how there was a remake, but and we've also slightly uh, uh, lightly touched on the fact that it was called Heroes Quest at first, uh, but then the name had to be changed. Can you can you maybe quickly explain what happened there? Yeah. Well, you uh, pretty much covered it in your uh, Adas Game Club article. Is that? Uh, um there had actually been uh, a couple of other things that were using the term hero quest right uh, and one of them uh, uh, one of them was a, a board game made by uh, a game design workshop in uh, England uh, and uh, they ha were licensing their game to Milton Bradley games and uh, uh, John Williams, who was the marketing director at Sierra uh, uh, did a, a a trademark lookup on it and At that point, you know, the Hero Quest board game was there, but there was no conflict in the uh, uh, computer game market. Hmm. Uh, I guess it was Game Workshop. Uh, Games Workshop uh, said, well, we are licensing out our board game for a uh, computer game that we called Advanced Hero Quest. And uh, your Hero's Quest title is, is confusingly similar to that. Right. Uh, and they managed to uh, say, uh, basically, uh, you know, we can't. Uh, we don't have precedence in America, but we do have precedence in England, and so we're going to uh, prevent you from shipping your game in England. Uh, 
uh, if you continue to use the Heroes Quest title. Which, yeah. And at that point, uh, all, all of Sierra's distribution for all of Europe was through England. So that would have been no no European games. Oh, yeah, that's huge. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, so Ken Williams tried to make a deal with them, but apparently, uh, uh, you know, he had bad relationships with the uh, head of Milton Bradley uh, from a previous incident. And the guy said, no, no, we're not, you know, mm. we're not going to accept any, any amount of money. We're doing this project and uh, we own the trademark. Mm. Uh, and, and so uh, this was, so we got the first game out and they said, you have to change this. Actually, yeah. Yeah, we, uh, they said we have to change the first game. We said, oh, yes, we'll change the name. And then they simply never changed the name because uh, most of the sales of a, uh, a video game are in the first uh, three months anyway. <laughs> uh, but they did say, for the next game, you have to change the name. And, oh, by the way, uh, since we don't want people confused about uh, your game in Advanced Hero Quest, uh, you're not allowed to say that this is Quest for Glory, formerly Heroes Quest. Oh. So we came out with a game called Quest for Glory 2, and a lot of players had no idea that Quest for Glory 2 was uh, was actually a continuation of existing series. They thought it was a you know brand new game, and somehow they had missed the first one. Yeah, I can imagine that. So it was. Oh, that's it was, yeah. It was a marketing disaster. Oh boy, the 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 funny thing is though that I think uh, your Heroes Quest is still the most famous Heroes Quest game, even though it's not officially allowed to be called that, uh, because. Yeah, I, I think another uh, video game called Heroes Quest or Advanced Heroes Quest it was released eventually, but it it never became as famous as your one. I think. Yeah, it was uh, it was just kind of a pretty standard, uh, uh, you know, console role playing game and uh, uh, you know, pretty simple game. Yeah, and it just I don't think, I don't think it's sold that well. Uh, no, but it did come out, uh, and it actually came out after our games, but they had filed the trademark sooner. Hmm. Right. Uh, and and they had the precedence because they had the board games were out before our game. Yeah. Um. D- did Sierra come up with the Heroes Quest name, or was that your idea? That was ours. Okay, that's cool because it fits in good with the Quest series that they've got going. Yes, and actually, some people actually get confused uh, st- uh, between King's Quest and Heroes Quest. So almost those names are almost too close together. Yeah. Oh, I had never realized that until you said it. <laughs> uh, the uh, remake was interesting because uh, uh, it originally started out with uh, uh, Sierra wanting to take their back catalog and their older games, such as King's Quest One and stuff like that, and uh, remake it in 256 uh, colors. Mm-hmm. And our game at this point was only uh, two or three years old. Yeah. Uh, but they decided to go ahead and uh, remake that uh, in 256 colors also. Uh, and the game sold extremely well. The uh, remake was very popular. Uh, yeah. But they decided, but they decided not to remake the second game. And when I talked to management about that, uh, they were kind of apologetic and said, "Well, uh, the problem is that uh, uh, of all the remakes we've made, Quest for Glory is the only one that is selling well." And uh, uh, you know, so we've canceled the project. We're not going to do remakes anymore. And that left Quest for Glory Two as an orphan, or Heroes Quest Two as an orphan. <gasps> As the only game that, uh, yeah, the only game that we have that was only sixteen color, and uh, yeah, years later, an outside company made a uh, two fifty six color remake as a fan uh, game, and I'm told it's quite good. Yeah, I've actually played it. Uh, I hadn't played it before. I had played the original one before, but I never played the remake until now. Um, 
and yeah, uh, it it looks like it looks like Sierra could have made it. It's it's just that style and that look, and yeah, it would have been great if if an original one had been released. But so the whole remake thing, it's weird though because you said the whole remake thing didn't sell that well, except for Quest for Glory though. So. Well, you have to remember that most of those adventure games uh, were very simplistic. They were, uh, you know, they were exciting because they were new and original. Mm. Uh, and there were text adventure games at the time, but nobody prior to that had put together uh, text and graphics to make a game. Right. So that was Sierra's uh, big uh, selling point. Uh, the problem is that those games were originally, uh, a lot of them were actually in four-color uh, uh, what was it called? The predecessor to EGA? CGA. 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 Yeah, yeah they were yeah. four-color CGA graphics, very low resolution, uh, and there was very little memory for gameplay. So people were making very simplistic games that, uh, uh, you know, there wasn't that much you could do in them. And so when they made the uh, graphics look fancier, uh, but did not rewrite the uh, gameplay, uh, it just didn't keep up. Yeah. Yeah, and there's not a lot of replayability also, maybe. Yeah. So, yeah, there's not really, uh, yeah. We designed our game from the beginning. We assumed that players would go back and play as the warrior and play as the uh, thief and play as the uh, the uh, magic user and try it all three ways. Yeah. Uh, and even if you uh, played as the same character, you could try to get more points or try to discover uh, you know, dialogue that you had missed previously and stuff like that. So we had a, a lot longer... Uh, play life uh, yeah. and we hear from a lot of fans that they uh, go back and play uh, play our games through every single year uh, and they've been doing that for 20 years or more wow yeah i've certainly played the, through them multiple times so yeah i uh, i can relate to that so um were you also involved with the remake the quest for glory one remake i was directly involved because i had to rewrite all the scripts oh how so uh, basically, when we started out in the game, everything was written uh, in the code itself. I only wrote a a script like a uh, like a uh, Hollywood script for a movie, right? That said what the dialogue should be. Um, by the time we came to game two, we I actually had a program where I wrote the the part of the script into a program that would put it into the game. Uh And so therefore um, I had to rewrite the entire script into this program to be put in and adapt it because we were changing the interface. It was no longer the typing interface and that alters puzzles Uh because typing the typing interface made the game inherently a hundred times more difficult. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you had to try to, you know, think of all the things the player might want to say and and give him the option to say those things and respond to it such that it felt like the game was responsive. With the uh, point-and-click style game, now we had, um, you know, the player has less creativity of trying to figure out what to do, but uh, you have to give the player you know the illusion that what he's doing is exciting and and interactive. Okay, yeah. I okay, so this meant you had to go back and 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 change the actual text a lot. The text and some of the puzzles because now how the player 
it, the player says something and then you had to make it such that he could ask a follow-up questions or something like that, such that it, 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 it all tied together and made sense. And so you were leading right. the player more than it did in the typing interface because you, you had no choice. I mean, if he asked about uh, who, what is a hero, then it made sense to tell him he could ask about more more specific things about that hero. Right. Yeah. But it leads the player. It uh, it directs the player in what he can or cannot say. And and in a sense, yes, the, the the point and click games are are easier. And so there are some people that that still much prefer the typing games, and and some that prefer the the point and click. The older Sierra players really loved the typing. Yeah, it was more creative. It was tougher. But yeah. you know, honestly, it's a thousand times more frustrating too. <laughs> it is. It is definitely. But there's also a sense of wonder, like like what can I type and what would happen, and it's maybe a bit more. Uh, predictable with the point and click interface. It is. Yeah. It is. So you you win some and you lose some. You get you you release you get rid of a lot of frustration from the player. You get a lot of roadblocks out of the way once we went to the point and click, but you lost the f- some of the fun, some of the creativity that you had in the typing. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's also uh, more recent research has shown that uh, one of the things that people really love and why, why we play games uh, is the sense of mastery. Hmm. Uh, the sense of overcoming obstacles and uh, when you had a really tough uh, problem with the typing interface and you finally solved it, players were like, yeah, I got it. And that's so cool. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you, you know, you still have that sense of, you know, solving the game, but it's uh, the harder it is, the more you get that feeling when you finally solve it uh, that, uh, yes, you know, I really did something. And, you know, that's hmm. uh, uh, the big quest for game designers is trying to make the games, which really are, you know, in a sense, a time-wasting, uh, you know, toy, uh, but we're trying to make it uh, feel to players as though that they're really doing something that's important and meaningful. You're saving the kingdom. You're, uh, you know, rescuing people. You're undoing uh, evil. Yeah. Uh, and that makes players feel like they really accomplished something and, and that there was a purpose for having played this game. Right. Yeah, totally. That's, yeah. Um, now that we're talking about the remake and and how you were uh, involved in all that, um, we noticed some other things changed as well, like some yeah some some details uh, that have to do with with how you play the game, such as uh, you can die from fatigue all of a sudden, or or the amount of money that you receive for certain items. Uh, how did how did these changes uh, come about? Well, I think they were all down there in 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 underneath the first game, but the problem was interpretation. Now, uh, for the for the remake, Corey wasn't directly involved. Mm. We were making quests for glory. He, what, what were you doing? You were doing the uh, um, Sega you uh, for the remake of one. Oh, you oh, were doing uh, the, oh yeah. Uh, Yes, yes, it was actually during. Okay, so Quest for Glory One remake and Quest for Glory Three both happened the same year, which was an uh, enormous strain on Laurie. Oh. Um, but what I was doing was uh, uh, Sierra had decided that. Uh, oh yeah, we brought Corey in as our Atari ST programmer, uh, 
And uh, uh, so he's a systems expert. We don't have enough of those. And uh, we've just made a contract with Sega uh, because they have this new thing called the Sega Genesis CD. And we'll take Corey in to uh, uh, remake the SCI system for the Sega Genesis CD. Uh, so I said, okay, you know, uh, we, don't, we don't really need you on Quest for Glory. Now the system's been established. Uh, a team can do it. So they pulled me off to the side to do systems programming. Uh, and in fact, uh, when I had a change request for, you know, one of the things that uh, was not being programmed correctly in Quest for Glory 3, and I went in and tried to help the programmer with it, they got mad that I was interfering. Oh. <laughs> so, you were interfering. Uh, it was kind of crazy. With- uh, yeah, so <laughs> I, was, I was interfering because... Uh, uh, I said, you know, we said we ha- we wanted to have a bargaining system where you could uh, uh, haggle with the merchants in Quest for Glory Three. Yeah. And the programmer said that's that's too hard to do. And I said, no, it's not too hard to do. It's uh, you know, fifteen lines of code. And I wrote the fifteen lines of code, uh, uh, and uh, he went around our backs to the uh, producer uh, and uh, said, you know, uh, Corey's interfering and. Uh, uh, and he's broken all the all the rest of the code by doing this 15-line uh, change and yeah. got the producer to agree that, no, uh, they should just take it out. And so we didn't actually know until the game was in final testing that there was no, no bargaining in it. What? That's it. So you, you were, yeah, you broke the chain of command on your own game. Correct. <laughs> and uh, uh, a year later, I ran into that producer in the hallway, and she just suddenly turns around and looks at me and says, you know, I hate you. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> and... Uh, and it turns out that what had happened is uh, uh, in the prior year, I had been working on the uh, – uh, Sierra had decided, just like uh, Ken had decided that we got to do a role-playing game now. The following year, he decided uh, – or two years later, he decided uh, we need to do educational games because uh, that's another market we don't have yet. Yeah. Uh, and so he had one of those big brainstorming uh, sessions and got all the designers and uh, – executives uh, together uh, uh, and every designer uh, gave uh, 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 10 proposals for what uh, educational games they wanted to do. Uh, one of mine was uh, Castle Dr. Brain. Uh-huh. One of Lori's was Mixed Up Fairy Tales. Uh, and uh, they accepted both of those. And uh, they actually only accepted one other, which was EcoQuest. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, and I'd been upset that uh, you know I was being underpaid and uh, overworked and so on mm-hmm. and been Looking for, you know, I said I had wanted to move into management, uh, and they said, okay, we're going to give you your chance. We're going to make you the uh, programming manager uh, for all of the educational games, and uh, so that was pretty cool. Yeah. But at the same time, they hired they hired a woman who had uh, strong uh, independent filmmaking credentials, and they told her, you are the producer uh, for all the uh, these new educational games. What they didn't do is they did not delineate what the lines of authority were. Oh boy! And uh, she was as as the producer. She felt she was in charge of all the teams, including the programmers. Oh boy! Yeah. And as the programming manager, uh, <laughs> I was clearly in charge of the programmers. And so she felt like I was constantly, uh, you know, stepping on her toes and getting in her way by. Uh, making decisions to the programmers that wasn't what she was telling them. Oh. And, of course, I didn't know any of this at the time. It was a year later uh, during Quest for Glory 3 that I learned that she had been really angry at me about this and, uh, uh, as a result, had, you know, gone <laughs> – never talked to us about she it. She never reproached you? No. Ah, oh, that's – Wasn't that type of person. Hmm. That's just weird. Ah. Uh, oh, well. I've run into that a lot in my career. Uh. I had a uh, – 
I had a thing with uh, uh, object-oriented programming where I'd ask the guy, you know, let's bring it in with some questions. And uh, instead of answering the questions, he got mad at me because I was questioning him, quote-unquote. <laughs> oh, man, and, surprise. You know, for me, I've always had – yeah, so I've always had an inquisitive personality. I'm always asking questions of people and, uh, uh, you know, trying to understand uh, more about what we're doing. But some people don't like that approach. Hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know what it was like at the time, but I can imagine that the whole computer game industry, it was extremely young. So maybe people felt a bit insecure by a lack of, uh, you know, experience. Absolutely. You know, in this case, I really sympathize. The producer was a uh, a woman who had made it, made it on her own in independent film development in uh, Hollywood and that at the time was a, a strictly male bastion. There were no women doing that. Uh, so she was constantly hitting resistance and she was constantly having uh, uh, the, the male executive second guess her in, uh, you know, in the film industry and shows she was used to having to really fight for any rights uh, in the industry. Yeah. Uh, Lori was very lucky to have an opportunity as a female game designer and that came about uh, at any other game company, she wouldn't have gotten the job. But at Sierra, uh, was founded by Ken and Roberta Williams, and Roberta was the game designer, and so that was you know, the way things were done yeah. there, and it was perfectly normal to have one as a game designer. Were there more, more um, uh, female game designers at Sierra? I, I mean, I knew about Roberta, but... Yes. The... Oh, yeah, several. Okay. Uh, cool. So the, uh, the, edu the educational games, uh, EcoQuest was actually co-designed uh, by Gano Hain and... Uh, was it Ellen? Oh, uh, Jane Jensen. Yeah, Jane Jensen and uh, Gano Hain. And uh, Jane Jensen later went on to uh, design uh, uh, several uh, significant games, uh, the uh, Gabriel Knight series, for instance. Uh, uh, so she became a major designer. Uh, Gano uh, went over and became a, a producer at Electronic Arts um, and left Sierra. Uh, um, uh, Christy Marks was brought in. Uh, she was a, uh, uh, a graphic novel uh, writer and a, a uh, Hollywood uh, uh, cartoon series writer. She did the uh, uh, Gem and the Holograms uh, series uh, on uh, morning uh, cartoons. Uh, and uh, she did uh, Conquests of Camelot and Conquests of Longbow. Oh, yeah. Uh, where, yes, once again, Conquests was taken to play off the, uh, the quest idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, like uh, the, the the Colonel's Bequest and uh, stuff like that. Yes, Colonel's Bequest was another uh, play off that. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, our, uh, our producer on uh, Quest for Glory 3 actually went on to become uh, the uh, lead writer and designer for, for uh, Police Quest Swamp. So, quite a few women working there. And uh, Oh, that's great. You know, I don't know whether they were paid the same as the men or not, but they had the same responsibilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... Yeah, it's uh, I I don't know a lot about the inner workings of the game industry, but I do read sometimes that diversity is a real problem nowadays. And then, yeah, I think back about Sierra, for example, where I get the impression that things weren't so bad at the time. So uh, things have gotten worse. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. Or alternatively, it was equally bad for everyone, not just the women. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was it was a very tough environment to work in. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, the rest of the, the rest of the game industry had almost no women designers. Uh, yeah. So Lucas Lucas was entirely male. Uh, uh, 
um, the uh, you know some of the educational game companies were the only places where women got opportunities. Right. Uh, so, um, uh, so Sierra it was it was unusual in that respect. Hmm. Um, actually, we got a few questions um, through uh, from members. Maybe actually Florian can can talk a bit about that. Yeah, um, so one of the questions we got was about the scale of the world and the lore that you built. And um, the, the, this person was wondering whether um, you see open world RPGs as we have them today as a successor to um, Heroes Quest or Quest for Glory or more the modern adventure games. I think that uh, this is the way I like to play. I mean, this the whole reason we went into game design in the first place is because the games out there weren't doing what we thought games should do. I mean, to have a strong story, to give the player the sense of control, and to have a world that you could believe and you could feel like you were immersed in the universe. And uh, I really like the way that ha- I, it isn't that we inspired it. It's just a okay. common need, I think. And so it's like everybody who plays games like we do wanted this in their games. And so I think it's just that it's the way things evolve to satisfy this need in human beings that we all share. Right. So it's a natural progression. Yeah. One of the things that makes us uh, very happy is uh, we're, we get a lot of uh, fan letters uh, from people that talk about ways that our games inspired them. And uh, some of them, uh, you know, we've had a few from uh, doctors and nurses uh, who switch from other professions to uh, go into the medical profession because they wanted to help people after helping people in our games. But we've also heard from... That's really cool. Wow. Oh, yeah, it is. Now, of course, you know, hundreds of thousands of people played the game, so we've only heard from a few of them. Uh, but we've also heard from uh, a dozen or more people in the game industry that say, I got into the game industry because of your game. Uh, and, and we've heard from many of the other uh, current game designers uh, that they were influenced by uh, Quest for Glory. And you, you can definitely tell that uh, modern role-playing games... Uh, you know, old role-playing games were strictly about the mechanics and had very little story. And modern ones, really, uh, World of Warcraft is doing exactly what Quest for Glory did. It's a hybrid of uh, story and, uh, uh, you know, and mechanic, uh, uh, role-playing mechanics. And uh, uh, I, re- I really do think that uh, pretty much all modern role-playing games are spiritual successors of Quest for Glory. And we have heard from many of the designers that, yes, indeed, they played our games so and we're influenced by yeah, them. Yeah, I can totally I, that's, see this. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah I, I can imagine lots of um, game designers coming from pen and paper role-playing games, and they just wanted to make um, like interactive games like you did, but now the technology has evolved enough to actually do it um, and to continue what you started back in the 80s. Oh, absolutely. That's very common. It was very common uh, when we started, too. I mean, even in the 70s and 80s, uh, uh, you know, where did people come from? They came from board gaming or paper gaming. Uh, yeah, I'd, I would say that uh, that was one of the shocks to us. We were, were you know, avid D&D players, and we came to Sierra Gaming Company. We expected there would be uh, D&D games going on in the evenings, and we found out that almost nobody else at the company was a role-playing gamer. Uh, you know, they played other computer games or they you know, played uh, board games, but uh, they didn't really play RPGs. Uh, so we eventually got a group together uh part-time but then the other problem was when you're working uh 50 hour weeks and more uh you don't have a whole lot of time for uh uh doing the same thing in the evenings <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can imagine that yep. um 
There was another Twitter question, I think, Florian. Yeah, um, it, I think it ties in very well with the last one. Um, someone asked that um, in Hero's Quest or Quest for Glory, the um, storyline is relatively open-ended and you don't really... Um, you are not really pushed towards uh, starting the story, really, other than being interested and walking around and taking a look at, at um, like the the quest, um, the quest in the in the what's it called? Adventurers Guild. The Adventurers Guild. Yeah. Yes. Thanks. Um, so, what strategies did you use to nudge players to actually look at the goals and find out what to do in the game? Uh, we didn't. You didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we just said. Okay, here we'll present the player with options and let the player do what the player wants. So we thought of this as uh, um, basically creating a game that the player, un, un, you know, creates for themselves. The, the true sandbox style game that uh, uh, the ideal one. But it wasn't that we actually knew what we were doing. It's just that it felt right at the time. Uh, and you'll see in our uh, the, the games after that, we had to actually do more focusing to actually tell a stronger story. So um, I was it's kind of sorry, sad that I don't think that open ended storytelling style that the first game is is as compelling as one where you actually have a strong storyline that runs through the player has to experience but uh, both styles you know both styles are legitimate and you know when you mentioned paper uh you know game designers uh, or actually uh dnd uh, dungeon masters coming into making uh, computer games and we talked about luck earlier well what is there to distinguish us from the thousands of other uh, uh, dungeon masters who were uh, running games at the time we did. Well, one of it is that I was willing to take the risk and jump. Uh, and then there were just all the little things, like you know my programming background, Lori's background as a uh, school teacher, and as uh, you know as having done uh, animation and cartooning and so on. That we just happened to have all the pieces of it. Uh, but there were probably you know any one of dozens or hundreds of uh, dungeon masters who given the same opportunity. He could have made several uh, similar games, um, right? Uh, you know, so there was a luck in there. But uh, similarly, there was luck in uh, you know the way we made the game and the fact that it turned out to be compelling. Uh, because uh, yeah, we had a story under there, and that was important. You know, we knew that uh, you know having a, a story behind the scenes was uh, you know was uh, uh, well good storytelling. Uh, but we also wanted the players to discover it for themselves, and uh, just the combination worked out really well. You know, we worked very hard at it. We worked many, many hours, and uh, a lot of brain cells expended, but uh, there was also, you know, some luck that it actually turned out as well as it did. Uh, and also, of course, credit to the team that, you know, we had uh, team members that were just as dedicated as we were, um, and we have that in our current game. We're working currently on Hero U Rogue to Redemption, uh, which is a different style game, but it, uh, you know, it's kind of the spiritual successor to Quest for Glory, much more story-driven. Uh, and we have a dedicated uh, group of people that are just working their tails off to uh, try to make the game as fun as it can be. Yeah, I, I actually just wanted to talk a bit about uh, what you guys are doing now with, uh, with the Hero U. So you say it's a bit of a different style game. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, in this case... We went with the storytelling 
things we loved in, say, LucasArts. If you go to uh, the Monkey Island, which is to, our, to us one of the greatest adventure games ever created, um, you have a main character that's distinctive and has his own voice. Whereas in the Quest for Glory games, we wanted the player to see the hero as his avatar. We never gave the character a name because we wanted the player to be that character, to feel like he is this person who is doing these heroic things. And he is saying what he wants to say in this game. Right. But for Hero You, we're going with the other approach. Here is a character that you're going to determine what his fate is and where he goes with his life, but he still has a strong voice. He can be snarky or he can be sweet. You have that choice, but he still has a voice, and he talks all the time to himself about what he's doing. So there's no narrator in this game. It's all experienced by the player and by and his relationship with the main character Sean O'Connor. Right. So it's a different feel entirely than what we did with Quest for Glory. Okay, that's cool. But it's still uh, a, an RPG adventure hybrid. Yes. Okay. It's still much, very much that. It's sti- it 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 follows that rule. It follows the idea that you can be good in combat. It's it follows the rule that you get better as you practice things. Ah, um, that's cool. Those things that to me that make up. I mean, the real re- the first joy you get in an RPG is the experience of mastery as your player your character gets better and better at what he's doing. Yeah. And it's it's very rewarding, and we hunt that same kind of experience for our main character Sean in Hero U. Um, but you have a choice of what you want to develop. Uh, Sean might actually have a skill for magic and be able to do some magic in the course of the game if the player wants to go that route. Or maybe he wants to learn about science and have the game be a little more science fictiony and get to make cool bombs and weapons and things. So we're still giving the player tools to make the character do what he wants him to do. But at the same time, he's still got this very interesting character named Sean that he's playing. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And and it's also in the form of a point-and-click adventure still? Is that the... Yes. Okay. Okay. So it's similar in a lot of ways? Well, it's a... Uh... Uh, strictly menu-driven. Uh, we actually went with a, a two-mouse button interface. Uh, you can right-click a button on anything to uh, get uh, to look at it, to get a general description of it. And then you left-click, uh, Sean will actually walk over to the thing, and uh, a menu will pop up of uh, uh, different interactions that you can have with it. So you can say, examine it closely, or you can say, uh, uh, you know, steal it. <laughs> uh, which generally doesn't generally doesn't work, but we came up with a hundred different clever messages for why you can't steal something. Oh, that's great! Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you, you know, you're supposed to be a rogue, not a thief. Uh, but we, we, you know, we let the player try at least. Uh, and uh, then the conversation is vastly more sophisticated than in Quest for Glory. Glory is uh, uh, we originally uh, uh, totally naively said we'd have this game out in a year hmm. when we put it out. In- Kickstarter, yeah, and it, uh, we're now in our fifth year. By the end of this year, it'll be the five years, 
and that's when we actually expect to release the game. Okay. Uh, and Laurie has been writing constantly this entire time. Wow. So uh, never had the uh, the luxury to do that much writing at Sierra. No. Uh, and of course, we have essentially infinite memory now. The uh, game is uh, the the download file currently is uh, one gigabyte. Zip. Uh, and you have to remember that uh, we were shipping on uh, 360K floppy disks when we started. Uh, so <laughs> That's a whole lot of floppy disks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we got kind of forced into uh, – uh, it was originally going to be a 2D tiled game, uh, and the original developer dropped out one month into the game, so we had to really scramble at that point. Mm. Uh, but we were, we started out using Unity, and we discovered that Unity is really bad, or at least was at the time we started – at making 2D games, and it's really good at making 3D games. Right. So uh, over the course of the project, uh, we gradually and then steadily moved almost all the art assets to 3D art assets. Uh, and there were complaints from players about this initially because, uh, you know, we have to deal with our fan base the whole time because of uh, Kickstarter, yeah. uh, uh, which which is a, a blessing and a curse at the same time. Uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of people remember Quest for Glory 5 was the only Quest for Glory that was done in 3D. Mm-hmm. And the technology was very primitive uh, back then, and it was not as pretty a game as the first four games. Um, so uh, going to 3D, people said, that's a terrible idea. You know, uh, it, it won't look good. And the fact is that uh, and it didn't look as good at first. Mm. But as uh, the team has uh, uh, developed expertise, we brought on the right people uh, the game just absolutely looks amazing now. Oh. Uh, we're doing things with the light, with the lighting that absolutely could not have been done in a uh, 2D game. Yeah. Oh, this uh, is exciting stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 really beautiful. That's cool. Beautiful. Uh, we have a we have a brilliant musical track from uh, Ryan Grogan, who's uh, an award winning uh, uh, television uh, music composer in Australia. Uh, we've got a, a developer in uh, New Zealand. Uh, we've got someone. Uh, both east and west coast of the U.S. Uh, so, um, you know, it's, it's really an international effort. Yeah. Uh, and people are just working really hard and doing uh, brilliant work. We're uh, we're personally, uh, you know, trying to bankrupt ourselves as far as we can tell oh. all uh, making this. But uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, the Kickstarter money covered about half the budget. Uh, yeah. I think this is a common uh, thing, though. But uh, that I... I Yes, yes, yeah. it is. And and uh, at the time, it didn't occur to us. You know, we thought, the kick, you know, whatever you got from Kickstarter, you were obligated to make the game for that price. Um, and uh, we realized afterwards that, no, people want the game, uh, and uh, they don't really care how you do it. Yeah. And they've contributed because they're they're saying that they want the big game. And we've had, a, you know, a few of the uh, backers have given us thousands of dollars. Uh, Wow. Uh, so obviously they're not doing it to buy the game. They're doing it because they believe in us. They want to see a great game being made. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, can I ask one more question about the character? Because I was just thinking, you mentioned that the character has more of a personality to him, uh, opposed to the hero of, of Quest for Glory. But does this also mean that you can't pick uh, his his class? No, you can't pick his class. Right. In fact, you start out you one of the first things that happen is you you do take a test to get into the school and you can determine what flavor a character he is, ah. whether he's very intelligent or whether he's very sweet and loving and and or you can take that same thing, he's very manipulative of people. And he knows how to say the right things. So 
uh, or maybe he's just snarky and you know uh, and in your face you can pick those kind of personality traits as you begin uh and then when you talk to people you have a choice of how you want to talk to them but uh and and either way you you portray how you want him to be but effectively he is stuck in a class as a rogue right but the yeah, I, I can see how this involves a lot of writing, though. Oh, it does. It, <laughs> yeah. Every every dialogue with a character with with other players, and there's a lot of other characters. There's as many characters in this game as in any of our other games. And it, for any given character you're talking to, you have to have a choice of how you talk to them or what you say to them. And it isn't just a matter of asking questions. It's, you know, trying to establish a relationship with those characters. And we actually have a, uh, uh, a measure thing. So see whether you're a friend with this character or whether you're a great friend or whether you're an enemy. So you actually can track that in the game as well as whether you have, you know, you built up your uh, um, strength or your, your fortitude in the game. This is really cool. Yeah. One of the things for the uh, amount of writing in it, starting uh, mostly in quest for glory four and five, uh, Laurie went to the technique of events. So, uh, you know, to a certain extent in the earlier games, but uh, those last two were really where she solidified the concept uh, that uh, uh, in each uh, scene of the game, you might have five or six events, uh, which are important things that happen there. Uh, and uh, they would have uh, different dialogue uh, for each one. So you come into the room and someone greets you and says, uh, you know, like uh, Quest for Glory 2. They'd say that was a really great thing you did, uh, you know, stopping the fire elemental and thank you for saving us. And because that was the most recent thing that happened in the game, that would become an event. Uh, where people would only be talking about that. Well, in this game, Laurie took it to the uh, nth degree, uh, and uh, in a sense, every day of the game, the, the game runs for uh, 50 game days, uh, and every day of the game is a separate In uh, many of the scenes, uh, there is a dialogue for uh, not every, but a, a large number, maybe as many as 20 or 30 uh, of the events have different dialogue. Wow. So as you're going around, you know, you're essentially in a, a much smaller area than in uh, Quest for Glory. You're just all within a castle and the, the dungeons beneath it. Um, but in terms of what we used to call rooms in Sierra games, uh, there's actually about the same number as in our, our larger Sierra games for this one. Uh, and every one of them uh, changes constantly. So you go to your uh, rogue classroom, and every day there is a new lecture. Oh. Uh, and uh, when you go and talk to the students in the uh, recreation room, there's different dialogue for each day of the game. Um, so this is uh, the game at this point is, uh, uh, I believe, larger than the largest of the Harry Potter novels <laughs> uh, in terms of amount of writing. Uh, oh. uh, and the difference is uh, that in any given playthrough, you're not seeing all of that. You're saying maybe... Uh, a third to half of all the dialogue in the game. Yeah. Um, but uh, the game is designed to be replayable many times, and then you'll be getting, uh, uh, you know, other aspects of it. So it, it is a it is a gigantic effort. It is uh, uh, certainly the hardest of the games we've ever had to test because, uh, you know, with Laurie having writing all these things, the script editor, we can't really tell if the path really exists uh, the way it was designed for the player to go through the game and get all the uh, what we call tags saying, yeah, you've done a particular thing so that it shows up in dialogue later. Uh, yeah. So uh, 
Ah. So I think this is a game that uh, that probably will be patched over the course of a year after we release it. <laughs> but now there's the internet, so now you can do it. So that helps. Well, the other thing we were doing is that uh, we have a set timeline for this game. Hmm. We have a set. This is set in one semester, effectively, of this school year. And therefore, you have a 50 days of events in the game. And every day has a different thing going on. Yeah. I mean, every every you, you have to go to class. And for every day in class, there is an event. Right. And so, therefore, this has more writing than, you know, a Harry Potter novel. <laughs> yeah. That's Honestly, to that's set amazing. this thing up, to give you these this feel like this is a real world and that you are in this thing and you're you're in a claustrophobic world, too, because initially you are stuck in this in this uh, castle that is where the university is held and you can't get out. You're not allowed out. And so, therefore, I'm within a constraints of environment that I have to make that interesting for the player that they didn't feel like, oh, this is boring. Yeah. You know, there has to have things to do every day, new experiences, and you're with the same cast of characters. So you're not one of the big things in uh, the, the RPGs is the sense of exploration. That's one of the big thrills of seeing something new. And so, therefore, we're restricting that. Yeah. You don't get to see something new every day. You actually some days look a lot like the previous day. And so it's a real challenge to give the player enough things, enough fun things to do within the same environment. Of course, as the game progresses, as Sean gains more skills and the player actually knows gets the tools to do those skills, he opens up areas in which case he opens up this vast sea cave complex and he opens up his access to the catacombs, new places to explore and, and new adventures to go on. But it still comes back to You still have to go to classes. You still have yeah. to get the character fed. You still have to do certain things and and deal with your classmates. So uh, it, it's a very design-intensive game trying to still give the player the feeling like he has complete control over what he wants to do. And that's a really difficult thing to pull off. It, it sounds really interesting, though. Yes, we th we like to believe so, and actually we've gotten very positive uh, feedback from the playtesters so far. Uh, but uh, we also ex uh, expand the game as you go along. Uh, so uh, early on, uh, uh, you're in the castle, but then uh, within a couple of days, you can get access to the wine cellar, uh, which is an, an old abandoned wine cellar, and that's your first kind of dungeon area where you have your first combat. Uh, and uh, then because of... Uh, You know, promises we made to the adventure gaming community early on, uh, it's actually possible if you get good at the uh, stealth scale and sneaking around, that you can avoid essentially every combat in the game. Uh, oh, that's great. I love that. And you can play it as a pure adventure game, uh, and what you don't get is a lot of the different rewards. But I thought about it. We talked about, you know, like in World of Warcraft, you know, you're constantly uh, upgrading your equipment and getting new rewards. And I said, well, why do you need that better equipment? Well, you need it to be better at combat so you can get more rewards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so <laughs> It's like a pyramid scheme. <laughs> exactly. So if you're avoiding it all the way through, you don't actually need any of that stuff. Yeah. You don't get as much money and so on. So you have a struggle to buy things. But uh, uh, 
you know, but the game is totally playable as an adventure game. Uh, or you could play it as a much more of a role-playing game and uh, uh, really spend your, uh, you know, spend your evenings and so on uh, uh, delving into the dungeons. Uh, and then, you know, later on in the game, we open up the sea caves to the players and they get some clues for where to go and how to get into them. Uh, and there's a whole set of uh, pirate uh, adventures and zombies and sea tentacle monsters and stuff like that that you uh, <laughs> encounter in the sea game, uh, sea caves. Yeah, this... uh, we've invented a poker-like game called Poobah that you uh, play several times during the game. Wow. And it's uh, abstracted out, so you don't actually uh, know what your cards are. You just know what the quality of your hand is and try to figure out who's bluffing and who's cheating around the table. Um, and so there's a, you know, a lot of depth that gradually opens up as you go through the game. Yeah, this sounds super cool. Um now the uh Kickstarter is actually over now. Um so can can people still contribute though? Uh yes, uh the best way to contribute uh, we have a website which they should look at which is uh, hero-u.com uh but they should also let me find our backer kit page cuz that's actually the better one. Uh um uh it's a uh, uh hero Hero dash you dash adventure dash role dash playing dash game dot backerkit dot com <laughs> slash hosted underscore preorders. So you'll have to uh, put this up on your page. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> well, well, I, put it, I put in this. Yeah, uh, but anyway, if they, or if they simply go to backerkit and look up hero dash you, they'll find a page for the hero dash you adventure role playing game. And there is a pre-order button there. Okay. Uh, and that will allow them to uh, uh, pre-order the game. And you can also uh, uh, buy little add-ons like uh, uh, we've got uh, some uh, toy stuffed animals that are uh, actually based on the Meeps uh, from Quest for Glory. Oh, that's great. Uh, those are actually really cute. Yeah. Uh, and you can buy those directly from us at uh, HeroU-com. But uh, I then have to merge all those orders into the back of can. Eventually, I do that. So yeah. you all go into the same pool. But uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. You can contribute. You can pre-order. Uh, it will be cheaper uh, to pre-order now than to uh, buy it once the game is out. Okay, um, this is great. We'll um, yeah, we'll put out links. Yeah, mainly we think you know you shouldn't be buying this because you want to bargain. You should buy it because uh, you want to encourage development of games like this. Yeah, totally. But yeah, that's exactly why I'm asking. You know, because uh, as as fans of 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 your earlier work, we. Uh, yeah, I can imagine people really want to help you guys out. Yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Fans really have made the difference in all of the games we did because we've always gotten fan feedback, and that's the only reason we stay in this industry because it isn't easy. It's terribly stressful. It costs a lot of money, and it's cost us a lot of money personally. I mean, between the job pay cuts that Corey has taken over the years to uh, the decisions to live where we live, all of these things have been because of the games, but they're also because of the fans, the fans that cared and enjoyed and reinforced what we're doing to know we're doing the right thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, yeah, this is really cool that you're still at it. Uh so yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll definitely put up the links you mentioned, and then uh, yeah, hopefully uh, people will be able to find it and and help you guys out. I found the uh, much easier way that I could actually put on a uh, a podcast is uh, go to hero u dot com, and there's a big red button that says pre order hero, and that will take you to the page that uh, had the really long URL that uh, I put in earlier. Ah, there. 
Yeah. Let, let's okay, upload. That's perfect. Uh, there's, that's perfect. There's also a support hero you button if people want to simply make a donation. Okay. And uh, we have a, a small number of people who are, who are actually subscribing that uh, uh, make a regular monthly donation. Uh, and uh, they don't get anything for it, but thanks. But, uh, you know, you get to feel good, good about yourself for helping projects like this. Yeah. And every once in a while, someone will make a larger. We'll get, we got a $500 donation. We get a lot of uh, $20 and $50 donations. And these all add up. They all go into the budget for the game. And uh, uh, we, you know, we haven't paid ourselves uh, for four years, but we pay a whole cast of uh, artists and programmers around the world. Uh, it, it is a very expensive proposition to make a game, yeah. uh, especially right. when you think it's going to be done in one, two years and it actually takes five. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can totally imagine. Well, this is great stuff. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll make sure that, that people will be able to find the, the places to help you guys. Uh, and and get this game made. You yeah, it sounds really exciting. Oh yeah, we're uh, you know we're DOS game fans. Uh, we're we're trying to make a game that is the uh, 21st century equivalent of the games that we made in the 1980s. Yeah, 1990s. Super cool. Um, these were actually all the the questions that we had prepared. But um, is there anything uh, that you would like to add, or or something that we didn't uh, touch on, or? A story that you might uh, remember or, you know, anything? Other than the fact that we really do want to thank you and thank all the people who play our games for keeping us going. That's, that is important. You are important to us. I mean, the reason we, you know, we enjoy doing interviews like this because it says that it validates what we do. It says what we do is important and therefore we will keep on doing what we do. Ah, uh, well, well, thanks a lot. It really, I, I would like to thank you because uh, to me, it's amazing to to be able to to speak with you. Uh, I mean, I just emailed you out of the blue with without any expectations, and then you were so cool to to uh, yeah to be on our show. So that's that's really amazing to us. Well, it's, it's kind of it's kind of hilarious to us because uh, you know we get treated like we're a gaming god and goddess, and uh, you, know, the, you know we're the we're the great heroes of uh, role playing games, and uh, you know to, to us it's always been work, but it's you know work that we love, but still work, uh, and that uh, as I said, you know many times we've got lucky, uh, and, and you know we have the right sensibilities, but uh, you know it's all really. The fact that everything just came together in the right ways that made these games possible. Other than that, we see ourselves as very ordinary people. Uh, you know, we like to go to uh, 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 DunderCon, which is a role-playing game convention, uh, every few years. We occasionally go to San Diego Comic Con. So, you know, we're fans and players every bit as much as we are game developers. And so, it's a uh, uh, kind of bemusing to us uh, to have anyone treat us as uh, as special. Yeah. Uh, uh, but well, but we drink in the adulation. So, it's fine. At least I think your time is very valuable. So when we just took two hours out of your development day, and you probably skipped lunch for us, so <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah. Well, we we all, did all enjoy food. it. Yeah, it is really. <laughs> I'm thinking food now. So thank you very much, and uh, keep doing what you're doing because that really is encouraging everybody to to play games and to enjoy it. Well, thanks right. a lot. Um, yeah, have have a great um, well, a great day, but also lots of luck with with Hero U. Uh, I hope it will be great, and uh, thanks a lot for talking to us. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. bye.
So, that was our chat with the Coles. Very cool they wanted to be on our little show, and thank you very much for listening. Please stay tuned, because we've got a lot in the pipeline. First of all, we'll discuss Quest for Glory with the members of the club, of course. After that, we'll have a podcast on Commander Keen, which we've played in September. And right now, it's still spooky October. So we are playing the very spooky Nightmare 3D by the British-American indie game developer David P. Gray. In November, we're going to play Grand Theft Auto. I think this will be great, and you should definitely get involved if you have as fond memories of the game as we have, or if you're just curious. To do so, please check out our website, dosgameclub.com, where you can find our discussion forums. You can also chat with us over on IRC at hashmark dosgameclub on Afternet. Or if you're using Twitter, you can follow us under at dosgameclub. That's all for now. Until next time, bye.